Welcome to the Music Book Club, brought to you by Automatic Panic. In each episode, we choose an album, listen to it, and talk about it. I'm Andy Payne, with me is Azin Khan. Hello. And our guest today is the impeccable Darny Walsh. Hello. How do you keep those beaks away? Ah, what an excellent introduction. Thank you very much. How's everyone doing? Doing well, thanks. Uh, getting ready for Christmas, I guess. I think by the time this comes out, Christmas will be in the rear view mirror, but uh, right now I think we're feeling festive. We've had our beer, we've had our pizza. Mm-hmm. So I've been mixing uh, one of our new songs and uh, finalizing the video. So one of one or two of those things should be out by the time you're listening to it. So I'm sure we'll be posting the links and plugging it at the end. How are you, Danny? <laughs> oh, I'm um, on the verge of a nervous breakdown, thank you. Yes. Um, it's been a time. <laughs> Oh, songs for the deaf. It's yeah, it's been a while since I've listened to it, and yeah, it, it was just like slipping into an old, comfortable slipper. Actually, yeah, it was very much like just took me back to like A levels, listening to it pretty much on repeat incessantly. Mm. Yeah, it's it's a fantastic album. Yeah, I got I got into it um, quite early on in my general music education. A friend of mine made me a mix CD, and he'd put. No One Knows and First It Giveth on that CD. And it's just kind of, oh, this is different to anything I've heard before. There's a bit of character, like flair, like a self-awareness about it that um, a lot of the stuff I'd listened to up until that point hadn't really. It definitely has a concept to it, right? And I think like a lot of people, the first song I heard from it was uh, No One Knows. It was probably mm. the most, still probably the most famous song. And I actually probably, uh, I saw the video first. I'm trying to remember back. And uh, with the deer and (laughs) they they run over and then it comes back to life and kills them and straps them to the the hood of the car, as you do. And uh, yeah, as you you said, it sounds a bit different. It's, there's definitely something to the feeling of it. When you, when you listen to it, it really sucks you in. Yeah, definitely, definitely. See what I mean about the concept of it, but it, it was quite interesting. I was thinking about it. it. It was around the time that pretty much every rap album had to have a skit, mm. so it was almost kind of like playing with that, with the whole kind of like the radio station tuning in and that side of thing. Although it, it just it ties the songs together really, really well. It feels like they do that in places where they don't quite know how to get from one song to the next. So they put that little bit in. It just kind of guides you through to the next track, or when there's quite an abrupt change. Yeah, there's, um, you can tell how much thought they put into that. Um, it was only when I got right to the end uh, and was listening to Song for the Dead, which is the 13th out of 14 tracks, and the I recognised a little guitar pattern. I was like, what, what's, hold on, I've heard that before in this listening of the album, and it's actually the last little bit that's playing before Millionaire kicks in, in the first bit, while the radio uh, guy is talking over the top. And it's that kind of like, it really bookends nicely Which is that whole arc. And it's the exact point where he says, mm. uh, LA's infinite repeat. Exactly, yeah. Mm. It's- yeah, yeah, I like, I like <laughs> the kind of criticism they have in a way of, I was reading a bit <clears throat> around the, the, the recording of it and things that the band were saying about it. And I, uh, I can't remember who said it, uh, but they were saying, you know, we wanted it to 
poke fun at the radio. They, they never really played our kind of stuff. They would always be playing the same sort of thing over and over and over and over again. And this was their way of kind of making fun of them. I mean, the first radio station, I was trying to keep track of all the stations they had. I think the first one is called Clone Radio. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we play the songs that sound more like anyone else than anyone else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I like this little dig at this kind of, um, I guess, chart radio um, mindset. And the reason it made me think of it as a time capsule is the analog kind of sort of sounds. They're kind of gone from our mm. music listening experience these days, aren't they? But we tune into Spotify or whatever we're using and you just press play and it starts and it sounds amazing to, from the beginning. You know, we've, in kind of achieving the technical mastery of the, the musical kind of, you know, experience, it's kind of taken something away. You know, first they give it to them and take it away, I guess, but... Um, <laughs> But it's true, right? Like it's, I, I almost miss those sounds. I, when you're actually sitting there listening to a crappy FM radio, you don't, right? You, you sit there and you go, this is a piece of shit and I don't want to listen to this anymore. Mm. You try and find something that has a good signal exactly. where you are. And it's kind of, I made, the, uh, I made the really amateur mistake about four years ago when I was upgrading the radio in my car. I decided oh, I'm going to save 20 quid and not get a digital radio. So now if I'm on a road trip and... I want to listen to some radio, find a good one, and then 20 minutes later... <laughs> You're driven out of range, yeah. Exactly. But that, which is really what's happening here. And it's a, it, it, for a lot of people, it's an experience that they've, they've, tech, they've technologied out of their lives. Mm. And so I think this, this, this album kind of gives, gives that nostalgia for, for that kind of thing. I th at least to me. It's a weird thing to say about an album like this, I think, to a lot of people. They wouldn't... <laughs> listen to it and say, oh, well, it makes me nostalgic for some sort of time. But it it really sells that. And it really, um, it has that kind of, I think it's sort of set in a, de as you were saying, as a in a desert kind of setting. That if you listen to the places um, that are named, they, they, they form a kind of belt in the American West, I think. It's driving inwards towards Joshua Tree National Park. <clears throat> and um, there's... Something about the radio, the way that it's done there, the way that the, even the album sounds, I think it has nowhere to go in the sense that everything's in your face and it doesn't have this like big airy reverb, which would, and for some reason it not having that big airy reverb makes it sound to me like it could be in the desert because you're very parched and it's very dry. <laughs> and I, I personally associate big reverb with a kind of wetness. I don't know if that, if that's a, something that other people would associate it with, but I, that's what I do. Yeah, no, definitely, and I think as well, it's it's very much an album that only could have become as popular as it did at that time as well. When we're talking about it being a product of its time, we think about what was it, two thousand and two? Yes. Yeah. Mm. So, pretty much, new metal was at its peak at that point. And I think it's the kind of album that just sneaked in on that wave, not necessarily being a part of it, but there were people who were certainly a lot more open to that sort of sound than they would have been otherwise. And I don't know, in a way, listening back to it is, like there are some really disarming moments, some really in-your-face moments, like we said earlier, it's not subtle at all. Mm. But in a lot of ways, it's like it is possibly their most poppy album. You look at the way that they've structured the songs, look at some of the hooks on it, particularly No One Knows, is, you know, it's, it's not left the radio for 18 years now. It's, it, it, 
it, there's a reason that it's it, it's still played and we still uh, talk about and listen to it uh, as an album. Like no one knows, like you say, is possibly the complete rock song. <laughs> Just every progression is amazing. The something that I repeatedly thought when I was listening to it is I don't know a better album for uh, bassists. Hmm. In particular, like Nick Doliveri, just what a what a complete performance. I think you, you made an interesting point about the um, the lineup as well. As if you look at all the many different iterations of Queens of the Stone mm. Age, it's probably the most lightning in a bottle moment for them. And mm. very lucky that Dave Grohl was really fed up of Foo Fighters at the time. They <laughs> really <laughs> benefited from that. Yeah. So who, yeah. who did we have on it? We had Dave Grohl, we had Dave uh, Josh Harm, obviously, and yep. Oliveri, um, Mark Lanigan, mm. who's like. Absolutely, like low-key MVP on the album. <laughs> um, think you had Alan Johannes on there? Possibly. And uh, notice definitely, is it Natasha Wagner? It was Alan, Alan Johannes' partner who passed away. But she was more prominently on Lullabies Paralyzed, but it's her voice that you can hear um, just before Song for the Dead. So, oh. Or is it uh, saying This is the Womb? Yeah, and she the was radio. there. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. she was their keys player on Lullabies. W-O-M-B. That's it. The, um, the radio. Yeah. That... I'm certain was that that like 20 seconds um, was the basis for the character of Melisandre in Game of Thrones. Ah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I was thinking yeah. when I was uh, doing it. If you, if you don't know what I'm on about, go and watch Game of Thrones and then listen to the little radio skit just before Songs of the Dead. You'll see what I mean. Yeah. It's, that. Yeah, that, that lineup really, I think, uh, a phenomenal group of musicians coming together at the right time. There was a part of me that always wanted to just stay behind the kit, Dave. But it's just—it's not not anything against the Foo Fighters. They've got some great songs, but just he's just so yeah. good behind there, isn't he? He is, yeah. particularly on this album as well. He's yeah. just like some of the work he puts in is just mind blowing. It's, it's the the sound is so. You listen to the drums, and there the sound is really highly compressed. They made every effort to avoid that sort of roomy sound by recording the drums and the cymbals separately. And still, you can hear the personality in the performance. There's, there's nothing dead about it. It's, it's exactly where it should be. And you can still hear the little tom flourishes that he's putting in. I think um, aside from the technical prowess that he brings, there's, I think the only word you can use to describe Dave Grohl's drumming in the album in particular, but also in general, is that it has attitude. Mm. You know, you can it just from the very beginning, even though it's like completely filtered and it's meant to be coming from a tiny little radio that at the beginning, it's, it mm -hmm. just draws you in immediately on Millionaire, right? Mm. And that's just his attitude. He, just, he plays the simplest thing that's, and that's, it just gets you moving. That's literally every student that comes into my lessons on drums, I teach them that exact beat, mm. first lesson. They'll never be able to play it like that, ever. No. None of them. No, there is just something about it's it. So you, yeah. But even even on the relatively like quieter or simpler moments like that, you can just sense the fun he's having. Mm. You can tell it was like a much needed respite from what he was doing at the time. It was it was, it was his little busman's holiday. Absolutely. And he, he went off and he played with them, and then um, and then and then he got back to his day job. Yeah. The um, I thought when I was a bit younger and I was just getting into all of this kind of music that that might be the last. I hear of Dave Grohl's uh, drumming in a really kind of real sense of putting it into this this project. Obviously, 
them crude vultures came out incredible uh, performances on there I still don't think it's as good an album it's a bit indulgent is this? exactly it's and that's uh, this yeah. this is what I would have said is the blueprint for anyone wanting to do a supergroup because ultimately it, like you look back in reflection it is a supergroup really when you consider where you know, uh, the guys came from uh, Caius and Nirvana and uh, Foo Fighters were already well established mm. by that point um I don't know the history enough to know if Mark Lanigan already... Was it uh, Screaming Trees? Something was it was yeah. Screaming Trees Mark Lanigan's bag? I mean, they, they were, they'd had some mild success. They were, mm. they, they were definitely on my radar around the time. Yeah. But not enough to actually remember their name properly, mm. so... But that's, I mean, that's... Anyone looking to do a supergroup and make the most of it needs to look at the fact that they approached it as, right, we've got a concept, we're really going to nail it. It's not just, ah, oh, you're famous for doing this guitar lick, just do it for... Uh, 10 songs that's boring to everyone I think I, I think it's not that different from say if you're top notch director or actor making a movie you you create a persona and you create a role and you throw yourself into it mm. and I think this album is a bit like that they've created this larger than life kind of world and they've just embodied it and I think that's awesome um, there's definitely a lot of not just character, but characterization, if, if you see what I mean, in that sense, is that they just, it just is them and they are it. That sounds ridiculous, but you know what I mean, mm. right? Like, it just sells you when, from, the, from that first little drumbeat. It just gets you in there. I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, for a lengthy album, and I know, I know we've discussed its length. About 55 minutes, excluding the uh, bonus live tracks. Yeah, exactly. But <laughs> uh, for, for a lengthy album, it, it is so focused in a way that some of their other work perhaps wasn't. I mean, I'm, I'm a massive Lullabies, for, uh, Lullabies to Paralyze apologist. <laughs> I do love that album, even though after Songs for, the De- uh, Songs for the Death, it was always going to be a little bit of a disappointment. Mm. I had a high bar to reach. But yeah, there's some bits on that you could easily, like, that's a 14-track album. It could have easily been 10 or 11. Mm. Everything in this album, even some of the lesser songs, they feel like they're exactly where they need to be. Uh, to the point where, yes, you can listen to some of the songs in isolation, but when I hear No One Knows on the radio, I'm still expecting the little skit at the end <laughs> and for it to go into First It Giveth. Absolutely. And, it's, and it works so well with that because you listen to it, as we've said, in context as an album, and it's just... It goes in, it goes in. You you feel like you need to progress to the next next part. And it's like it's it to me it's a kind of continuation of I think many people say the era of the album was born when Sgt. Pepper was 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 released. And the Beatles did exactly the same thing. They created this band, this fictional band, <laughs> and they became that band. And I think Queens of the Stone Age have done something similar here. They've they they haven't named the band or anything like that. They're still there's no fiction fictional band, but they've they said, this is the world we're going to live in. And for 14 songs, you're going to be in it as well. They knew they were good through the album. They weren't afraid of doing anything on there. Like, the, the number of false stops in that piece. And then the, it happens in Millionaire. And then it happens a couple of times later. And then it happens in Songs for the Dead. And you're going... No, no, that's the end of the song. And no, they do it <laughs> twice in the same song. <laughs> I, uh, it's a lot of balls to do that. Balls is the wrong word. I don't like balls. Balls are, balls are easily damaged. It takes a lot of womb 
to do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, they definitely didn't hold back, and that's one of the things I like about it. And I like it's one of these albums that's not afraid to take its time over things. Um, I think a lot of albums these days in particular are really just a collection of singles. Mm. And you cannot say that about this album. Songs for the Deaf, it's an album. And I can't I personally can't even pick songs from it to listen to. I just have to start from the beginning. <laughs> Sometimes there are some albums as I said they're they're collections of singles and you can just shuffle them up and listen to them and it's, it doesn't really make a difference to how you perceive mm. the songs. And this I, one is definitely a journey. Mm. Takes you on a road trip. Exactly. And it's even the sort of songs are taking you on a road trip with them. And everything about it is meant to evoke the kind of car radio um, from from the the lyrics of the content of the song to the, even the sound, as I keep coming back to, because these are the things that I'm interested in. Um, like the guitars are all completely mid-rangey and there's no bass or treble on on them. And it just sounds like they're coming out of a cheap little speaker. <laughs> and that's meant, that's exactly what it's meant to give you, uh, that's exactly the sensation you're supposed to get. And it works. And they really went for it and they, and they really got it. And I, I love that. Yeah, and they they took they took a lot of influences, but they always kind of like funneled it into a really singular sound that was mm. very much them. Yes, I was thinking this about um, was it on Do It Again, and then I thought they've been listening to a bit of glam rock in particular. <laughs> they've been listening to Gary Glitter, Rock mm. and Roll Part Two. It is pretty much identical, but it's just done in such a confident manner that you don't even notice it until like the fourth or fifth listen. It just, you know, it's it's them. It's a huge statement of intent. Mm, absolutely. There's a uh, the, yeah, Mosquito song as well mm. is uh, obviously Led Zeppelin influenced. Uh, but then there's much more bombast than Led Zeppelin would ever dare to do is a bit of Queen going on. I almost feel like Josh Holm let himself go, right, I'm just going to go with whatever I feel like here. When We don't have to be a rock band. Uh, for this song, and there's so many elements in there that are um, from uh, classical, even like he'd possibly been listening to Frank Zappa as well, that kind of wide-ranging, it doesn't really matter where it comes from sort of idea. It's it's not fashionable when you listen to it in in that. And just to pick up on your point again, as in that the... I, I think I can listen to songs in isolation from the album. However, listening to it as a whole makes so much more sense. And even the songs that I don't care too much for, like I don't particularly care for The Sky Is Falling um, on this album. However, in the context, you've just had Millionaire, No One Knows, First It Giveth, and Song For The Dead. I don't know a better first four songs on anything of all, like ever. Like I'll, I'll happily uh, accept any challenges to that. Um, I think on that one. Yeah, that's a challenge. That, that will, yeah. Yeah, I might come gauntlet. back to it at some point. And then the sky is falling comes in, and it just gives you that bit of a respite. And this is that whole part of the way that the album is structured. And you're not sure if that, because uh, everyone has a different writing style, no matter where they uh, where they where they kind of come from um, as musicians, um, and even different processes for different albums, but almost feels like they deliberately went we're just going to pull it back we don't need to we don't need to write the best rock song of all time for all of it and you know for, i'm sure it's 
a bit more of a favour of other people, but even in context of this, if that's my least favourite song on the album, oh, it's better than some uh, than every song on some big band's albums. Like Millionaire, you've got Nick uh, Dolvery takes the lead vocal. Then Josh Holm does uh, No One Knows and First To Giveth. And then Mark Lanigan is doing Song For The Dead. So in four songs, you've had three lead vocalists and very different flavours coming in to it. And so yet still, it sounds cohesive. It doesn't sound like uh, like in metalcore, uh, for example, uh, which is uh, something I hear a lot. The vocals often, you'll have a clean vocalist and a screaming vocalist, and they don't necessarily work together. Whereas that's definitely not the case here. Yeah, mm. I think I think if you didn't know better, you could you could be fooled into thinking it's the same person. Mm. Well, if you compare it to another quite popular heavy alternative band at the time, System of a Down, mm. who, like Queens of the Stone Age, have disarmingly pretty harmonies, mm. but like there's definitely like oh here's a Surge song, oh here's a Darren song, <laughs> oh here's a Surge song. <laughs> Oh, no, they've done an album with 10 Darren songs, <laughs> uh, which is what it became by the time we got to Hypnotize. <laughs> oh, Massive Attack Mezzanine, opening four tracks, Angel, um, Rising Sun, Teardrop, Inertia Creeps. Mm, I don't know Massive Attack as well as I should. I will have a listen okay. and get back to you. Some albums, they really peter out. You know, there's some albums that they can never live up to the beginning. Mm. Um I think we were talking about it earlier, sort of off air. Joshua Tree is one of those albums. It starts really well. It's really big. And then it just sort of peters out in the second half. This is not one of those albums. It starts strongly and it finishes the same way. I think it's pretty consistent throughout. But Song for the Deaf is just, it's an absolute behemoth. It's the song that, so I was really, really fortunate. And I got to see them when they were touring this. (sighs) And I think it was the Astoria think it was and um there's a point during this song which I, I don't think i was like overly familiar with that track at the moment i'd you know i'd listened to the album a couple of times really got familiar with the hits and there was a moment during this song this big burly blow is about six foot six just said very very loudly surrounded you know surrounded by everyone just in awe of josh Holm. he went you know what i'd let him fuck me <laughs> <laughs> and everyone looked around at him it's just like yeah, fair enough, mate. Do you know what I think I would too? So, <laughs> I mean, Josh Homme himself is a big burly bloke as well. <laughs> I make a great couple. Yeah, Rated R was almost like the dry run for this one. Have, exactly. you, have you listened much to the first first album, the self-titled one? No, I have not. That's got a couple of great tracks on it. Mexicola's like a really, really, I think it's been quite a live mainstay as well over the mm. years that they've really stuck to playing. But yeah, you can kind of see the threads of what they were trying to achieve with Songs for the Deaf through Rated R. It just hadn't quite got there yet. Mm. And I don't. And we've talked about before, obviously, with the um, just that lightning in a bottle moment of having those particular people at that particular time. Mm. Maybe that was the thing that it needed just to get it to that extra point for them. And just to bring out that little bit extra mm. with the right, the right drums and the right vocal mix or whatever it is that they needed. Who produced this yeah. record, incidentally? Did anyone look uh, it up? The credit is to Eric Valentine, but there is some weird dispute about it that Josh Holmes said later, well, he didn't really do that much. He just sort of did a bit of the engineering, and that's that. Uh, so it's hard to say. I remember watching a video <clears throat> um, with Eric Valentine where he sort of goes through a bit of how they got the various sounds and how the guitars are just they just literally grabbed all the mid knobs 
and just turn them up to max. <laughs> just if, they, if it said mid on it, they, it was at number twelve. It's the Andy um, Warhol school of production. Yeah, just fucking <laughs> crank it up, and that's what gives them that really kind of nasally, kind of mid-rangey kind of bark, and it's a really cool tone. Um, but it, it's uh, so in the video at some point he says, "Oh, I can't tell you exactly what it is or what we use or whatever," because the band are really secretive, and I wonder if they just if there's they still have some long-running beef with them. I, I don't well, know. It's they just odd. never told him. Yeah, they just never told him. They just went and did play. it. <laughs> just press record. It's fine. Yeah, who knows? Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's it's very well-produced album, actually. It really sells you... I think it's always about the intent. You know, yeah. when, when somebody's trying to go for a certain feeling and they do whatever they need to, technically speaking, just to get it, any average listener to feel that way, then I think that's a... To me, that's a success, and I think this is one of those albums where they've they've succeeded in whatever they're trying to do. Mm. There's just enough subtle changes mm. in every single song. It, it still feels very much cohesive whole, but it never gets boring, mm. which it would be very easy to do with so many songs that are in a C tuning and have that many <laughs> false stops and have that many audacious moments. It could mm. become just overwhelming, but it... it I think they just stay on the right side of self-parody. Yes, definitely. It's um, it is self-aware throughout. They have they don't go full circle to the point where they're just indulging themselves. To go back to song for the death for a second, that would be the best song on just about any new metal album based around that riff. Yeah, and there's there's still still a lot of Caius in there. <laughs> You can still hear it. It's just maybe a little bit more polished, a little bit more pristine. Mm. Songwriting's a little bit more focused, a little bit more structured to it. Mm. Uh, just to go back to the point you're making, though, um, about uh, The Sky Is Falling, it might be my favourite track on the album, actually. <laughs> uh, I don't know why, either. It's just stuck with me. Over the, it's, it's, it's one of those songs that I can understand why it's a bit of a non-event for a lot of people. Mm. But it just does enough. I, I, I can't quite put my finger on it. It might just be that tiny little breakdown, those beautiful harmonies and that twiddly little guitar solo. Mm. Right, just like that, that riff is absolutely punishing as well. Yeah. You're right. It's yeah, every once in a while. It? I think that just <laughs> needs something like that, I suppose. Exactly. But, but the, I mean, even though it's not, it's probably my least favourite song on the album. I don't dislike it. It's no. still interesting enough. It genuinely is a all-killer, no-filler I, I really like it, and it, it reminds me of more... It's the wrong way around, chronologically, but it reminds me of uh, Iggy Pop's re recent album, um, Post-Pop Depression, which was produced by none other than Josh Hom. Oh, right. And, it, and if you like that, it's... Well, just imagine Iggy Pop does... Queens of the Stone Age, <laughs> to me anyway. It's, it's that, it, and it has that same kind of. Um, in in that album, there's a lot of there's a fair few songs in six, and they have that kind of waltzing, kind of swinging th lullaby kind of thing like th that you get with Skies Falling as well. Dun, 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 dun. Um, and uh, it's a, uh, as you were saying, it's a very desert rocky thing for me. I think mm. um, there's something dreamy about it there's something you could almost be looking at a mirage and Nagy Pop albums with Arctic Monkeys drummer as well isn't it I think I you're think. right yeah well, they, the, put, they put together the Arctic quite Mon the cast yeah yeah Arctic Monkeys uh, recorded 
Um, humbug. Humbug with Josh mm. Homme. I did want to bring up one thing in uh, my favourite part of the, like, individual part of the album is in Hanging Tree, which is in 5-4 already, but you wouldn't know it unless you were physically counting it. But in the middle eight, Dave Grohl switches out the syncopated snare feel that he's got for the rest of the song and brings in a solid 2-4 feel, but because it's in five, you end up with 2 4 one, three, five. Two, four, which is just, it's really simple, particularly for what the drummer is doing, but the way that it links up with the bass line creates this beautiful effect of displacing the beat without actually having to do anything about it. Mm. And then they only do it for eight bars. And like, no, that's enough. Fine, we're back into the, the main bit of the song. You can have great ideas and and put them in the perfect place and then not overdo it because yeah. they could have easily they could have easily done an extended section yeah I that. mean it's um, there's something that Nile Rogers and Bernard Edwards in Chic used to call that sort of they used to call it that deep hidden meaning which is slightly sarcastic <laughs> uh, way of talking about it they said that we find a killer hook and a killer riff but we do it once mm. in every song just that moment and I think that's in that song that little bit where it switches out and the the stress keeps changing is that DHM bit mm-hmm. <laughs> of of uh, hanging hanging tree? It's my favourite Mark Lanigan vocal on the album as well. Definitely, I know he makes a few appearances. I think God is in the radio is possibly erring on the side of one of my less favourites. I'd hate to say that there's a song on there that I don't like. So it's simply not true. But <laughs> God is in the radio, and funnily enough, I think um, Go with the Flow. The two of my lesser songs. Oh, really? On the I really album. like Go with the Flow. I, I love mm. it as well. Yeah, was yeah. It, it was one of the singles. It's one of the singles. It, it has an animated video. Mm. I actually feel like Go with the Flow is a great song. Yeah. But you, it's one of the few that if you were to leave it out or skip it, it wouldn't affect the flow of the album too much. See, which it, I don't think I can say about many of them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> which I couldn't say about too many of the others. Yeah, I see. I see what you mean. I the way that I interpreted it is almost like the the smoother, lighter side of Millionaire, mm. whereas Millionaire has because mm. it, it's it, they're both very driving yeah. sort of eighth note da, 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 kind of feel through it, but it's got the much smoother vocal uh, to it, and it's Josh Holm, I think on um, Go with the Flow, mm-hmm. and I think so. as as opposed to Nick. Uh, Dolvery on uh, Millionaire, but there's also like the piano little bits in the mix um, that are going on. It just gives it that slight different edge. But uh, I, I agree that it does feel a little bit more like, you know, if you were to take each song in isolation, that's the one that could be like, oh, they've written a little ditty that they're releasing as a single. Um, but, but then again, in the context of the album, that's their <laughs> MOR yes, exactly. song that can go on the radio. Yes, so exactly. it, it still has a place there. I was mm. just thinking as well, I um, thought of this point earlier, it's just come back to me. Did anyone have the same experience when they first loaded the CD into the tray that I did, where they thought, oh, this sounds really tinny. I'm just going to turn it up. And then, ah! And <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> it just terrified my parents. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is a really, really good way, tr- sort of trick. If you... If you make the intro to your song really tinny and quite, you knock off all the high and all the low, you can fool people into doing exactly that. And so it's 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 not. I don't think it's a trope. It's just a really good psychological trick because you'll just go, oh, let's just turn it up a bit. It's it, mm. it very much in line with the thing. How are people going to listen to this? Mm. 
that, and that's one of the reasons for the, the false endings. There are a couple of false endings that are over two bars long in this. That's not a mistake. That's not the kind of thing that you just put in when you're songwriting. You think about that and you go, how are people going to listen to this and judge that uh, when they listen to it? So kind of going like waiting for the next song and nope, we're back on the same <laughs> one. Um, same category for sure. Have you got to the point, I suppose you'd probably be the most qualified out of the three of us on this, where you know exactly where they're going to come back in? Yes. I have a... With um, Dave Grohl, I'm going to come back to him, like a, one of my biggest disappointments is seeing uh, Foo Fighters live. Um, and in Monkey Wrench, there's a similarly um, long pause before they come back in. But instead of leaving it as the long pause with the, the false... Ending. I mean, it's only after the, the um, kind of the first phase of the song. But he played a little guitar noodle over the top to keep the time. I was like, oh, but the beauty of that is in the break. Mm. He does that it, so often live. It's like, I love stacked actors. I did not need it to be 14 minutes long. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think we're, um, we're reaching a consensus that this is Dave Grohl's uh, best work, perhaps. I mean, certainly I think it is, but it's it's what I it's like the there. most of what what he's done. I mean, obviously, for sheer significance, you're going to look... Uh, you're going to look, look at Nirvana. Past right. Nirvana, right? I flip a coin between this, is it, this and In Utero. Mm. Maybe I need to listen to Nirvana more, and then I can make a more informed choice. Maybe. I don't, I don't think there's ever a point where you shouldn't listen to more Nirvana. This is... Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. All right, all right. That's, um, my, that's my takeaway philosophy for this. Okay. Do we feel like we've missed anything that we wanted to say? Uh, uh, oh, I did want to talk about back, backing vocals hmm. in this album. Because uh-huh, yeah. you two as vocalists will have much more to say on this than me, I am sure. But as a... Um, a rather dull instrument uh, in the music making process. The fact that I am able to listen to this album and go, oh, that part is entirely made by the backing vocals, the harmonies, the... There's a part in uh, No One Knows where the backing vocals are whispered underneath the main vocals, mm. really loud, distorted. Mm-hmm. It's the... Um, With no yeah. Mm. We just it's that it's that storytelling element of it. it's like it's why you put a light underneath your face yeah, in yeah. a in a campfire, right? It's why you jump out at people. It's one of the few songs as well where it, it does something more ambitious than simply place the third above mm. as well, because that's a lot of the backing vocals mo through this album, and it's simple but incredibly effective, and the placement of it is always really really well judged. But in that second verse, we got a Oh, and you've got a little free part, you've got a rising part with it as well. And the actual arrangement of that is really, really intricate and really, really clever. So I think it's, it's not just a simple case of like a lot of vocalists do where they go, well, yeah, just chuck a third on it. <laughs> it's, it's about what's going to service the song. And I think that, that is a constant theme with this album is that they've really thought, mm. even in its slightly more excessive moments, right, what's going to absolutely make this song punch through and stay memorable. Mm. And usually that, I think you achieve that kind of thing with, it seems odd, especially in the context of songs for the deaf, with restraint. Mm. So when you just chuck a third on it, if that third is then tracked over the entire melody, that's just a big block. Mm. And you have no interest. You lose interest quickly because it doesn't go anywhere. With backing vocals in particular, and I think 
um, in general with all the different parts. It's the stuff that they don't play. Mm. You know, so it's the bit, and it's the, and then therefore you draw attention to when they do come in. So if they only come in on a single phrase and then go away, or even a single word, as and in this album they do a lot of this kind of stuff, mm. where they come in and they come out and they come in in weird places that you don't expect them in in weird ways, like uh, like uh, like in no one knows where they whispered. Um, it draws your ear, mm. and I think that's that. Uh, that's really important, and that's that's what makes them so strong. And that's it was like you were saying that they're arrests, and that that's the thing. It's I think Miles Davis said once, um, it's not the shit you play, it's the shit you don't play. Mm. You know, exactly. like when you stop, yeah. that's that's what made Bonham an amazing drummer mm. as well. It's what he made you think was there that wasn't actually in it, like a Bonham triple, a uh, triplet. Sorry, has two notes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It really, it's what really draws you in as a listener. Hmm. Yeah, I think I think uh, this album, Songs of the Death, is uh, an amazing example of that. There's so much raw talent going on in them, and you can tell that they've gone, no, nope, that doesn't need to be there. Um, however, that does need to be there exactly mm. where it is. Yeah. Um, it must have been a real tightrope act. Ooh, yeah, absolutely. Particularly like in terms of, you know, well, mm. even in the studio, but, even, but particularly writing the songs, because it... Does constantly feel like it's just going to teeter over <laughs> at any point, but they ride it for those fifty-five minutes. You're totally right. It has that. It's really frenetic, isn't it? It's really. Um, it it feels like it could fall over at any moment. Mm. That's that's what makes it so exhilarating to listen to because you're just waiting for it to fuck up and it doesn't. <laughs> mm. It just keeps it's, going and then it finishes. It's and, thrilling. Yeah. yeah, it's really thrilling. Mm. Was that genius? Is a peak, not a plateau. Yeah. I'm proud of myself for that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think that is a great uh, position to end it. Thank you very much for coming in, uh, Dani. Thank you very much for having me. Any last words, Alton? Uh Not really. I think it's been... Uh, I'm just going to let Josh Holm have the last word, I think. <laughs> if you liked it, then uh, please let us know uh, on whatever app you're uh, listening to this on. Give us a little rating write us a review and uh, send us a message with some feedback um, if you want to give direct feedback to us you can find us on Facebook Instagram and SoundCloud or Spotify obviously listen to our songs let us know what you think and uh, we will see you next time links to everything we've been talking about in this show as well as our own stuff can be found below thank you see you next time see ya Is it Hom or Homie? I've heard it both ways. So yeah, I have said, all my life I've said Josh Hom, but I've heard people who know him a lot better than me say right. Josh yeah. Homie. Corrected then. Homie. Fair enough. <laughs> um, I think we should just go for the French. Hom. Um. Um. <laughs> <laughs> it's French. You don't say half the letters. Uh, yeah. Whereas in English, you don't say the other half. Josh, that's mm, true. It's the question mark added mm. by Deepo. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent.